So a reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 26, and you can find that on page 1178 from verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. <clears throat> it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, pre- the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me. While I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again and your boasting Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. G'day everyone, I'm, uh, I'm Jack, I'm the MAP trainee here at Trinity Grove. Let me add my welcome to Mike's and to Corolla's and to everyone else's. It's, uh, if you're new or visiting, a really warm welcome to you. I'm really glad that you can be here today with us. I'll just uh, get everything sorted out. It's uh, great that we can yeah, jump into this series together on Philippians, thinking through uh, what it looks like to shine like stars, to live as Christ's people uh, in this world and see Him exalted in our lives. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a family that I know, I've known them for a while, I met them a while back. Um, the dad is a psychologist, he's quite intelligent, quite smart, um, and, and quite wealthy as well. He's done pretty well for himself as a, as a psychologist, I must say. Uh, he, has, he has a wife and he has two kids as well. And it's the two kids that, are, that I really want to talk to you about today. There's, there's this one kid who's like, he's the most pessimistic person you'll ever meet in your whole life. He's like just super negative about everything. So this is this one child, this one boy, and the other boy, his other son, he's completely the opposite. He's just this optimistic young kid, like everything is positive, everything's going well. He's just full of optimism. And this dad one day decided to conduct an experiment. He was a bit concerned about these two boys. You see, he's like, why, why are they like this? This is really strange. 
So Christmas rolled around, he decided to, to, to use Christmas to conduct his experiment. He wanted to, to even out the two boys, like the pessimistic boy to become more optimistic, the optimistic boy to become more pessimistic. I'm getting this right. Anyway, so Christmas rolls around, he, he starts off his, his experiment. So the two boys run into his bedroom and like, Dad, it's Christmas. And he's like, yeah, happy Christmas. Yeah, like celebration. But then he, he wanted to send the two boys to different rooms in the house. So the pessimistic son, he sent to one room, and the optimistic son, he actually sent to a shed that was outside. It was like a converted stable. Now the pessimistic son, he went to a room that was, that was full to overflowing with presents of every size, every shape, every description. It was amazing. He could like barely get into the door. And then to the optimistic son, he sent him to this shed or this stable that was filled with horse manure. Um, so anyway, the, the, the dad's there, he's in the room and he's kind of waiting and he starts hearing this wailing sound and it's like, all oh, right, here we go, the plan's working. So he, he runs out of his room, runs down the hallway and stops. It's like the wailing's coming from in the house. So he walks to this room where his son, the pessimist, is standing and he's just there and he's just crying and the dad's like, what's wrong? And he's like, there's too many presents. I can't, how am I meant to play with all these presents? I'm not going to have enough time to play with them. He's devastated. He was so sad about this. So negative. The dad was like, what's going on? And then he hears this, this like whoops of joy coming from this other place, the shed, right? And he's like, this is weird, right? So he runs outside. He walks up to the shed and it's a bit of a disgusting sight, right? Um, the optimistic son was jumping in and out of the shed kind of swimming through the poo, the poo, kind of like, yeah, this is awesome. And the dad like pulls him out, thinking like there's something seriously wrong with this kid. And he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And the kid's like, with all this horse manure in here, there's bound to be a horse somewhere. <laughs> there's got to be one in there. Come and help me look. This kid is just full of optimism. For uh, for Paul, he's, he's like this kid in this situation, in this letter. Like this kid is jumping in and out of this, you know, disgusting mess. You see, Paul is in a really messy situation himself. He's in prison. He's had people preaching against him. He's lost the support of a bunch of churches, a bunch of people who he thought had his back. He's in a seriously bad position. But then he writes this letter to the Philippians, to the church in Philippi. He's like, guys, I have this great news. It's full of joy. Is Paul just putting on a brave face? Is he living in a bit of a fairyland? Is he just delusional? What's made this man who's in prison so optimistic? As we get into this great part of the Bible, we should pray together. Let's ask God to help us to figure this out and to learn from his word today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this passage this morning, we see the work of the gospel bearing fruit through seemingly impossible times. And we see the things that work against those who want to see your word go forth. So help us really feel this morning the deep-seated joy of seeing your word go out and bear fruit. And please teach us what it looks like to live in this world, shining like stars in a world that desperately needs to know you. Amen. So point one on your outline should pop up on the screen as well. Paul's priorities. Uh, I'm assuming most of us here are familiar with kind of the story of Paul, but I'll give a bit of a snapshot of it just in case. Uh, see, Paul the Apostle is someone who once had a really drastic change in priorities in his life. See, Paul is someone who used to persecute the church, persecute Christians. It was his job to actually hunt down Christians. 
his priorities revolved around finding people who followed Christ and wanted to tell others about Christ, and he wanted to shut them up. This was his job. That is, until Paul himself became a Christian. Uh, in Acts chapter 9, Paul was on his way to hunt down some more of those, those pesky Christians. Uh, when Jesus appeared before him, the reason Jesus appeared before him, uh, and Paul was a bit, a bit startled, understandably, and Jesus asked him the question, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Not long after that, Paul, he figured out, well, I'm doing the wrong thing here. I need to put my trust in this man, in Jesus. I need to follow him as my king. So Paul became a follower of Christ and began preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of redemption, of life everlasting. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, that this man who once been so zealous in chasing down and, you know, snuffing out Christianity, who was there in, uh, again in Acts, when the first apostle Stephen was stoned to death, standing there nodding his approval at this, it's amazing to think that this guy would now be in the position that he'd placed others in. But that was the work of the gospel, that was the work of Jesus Christ in his life, as the Holy Spirit did its work in his heart. It's the gospel that he was called to preach that drives Paul and his desire to see others saved as he himself was saved. And from verse 12, straight off the bat, we understand what Paul claims is driving him. Why he's not panicking and asking for a way out when he finds himself in prison, but actually seems content with the position that he is in. Well, last week we heard of Paul's joy because of the partnership that he has with the church in Philippi in the gospel. Now today... We hear of Paul's joy in the advancement of the gospel. This man who is stuck in prison has something very clearly at the forefront of his mind as he's writing this letter. He wants the church to know his priorities. He wants the church to know that the gospel is going out. Can you, can you imagine being in that situation though? If we just step back and kind of put yourselves in, in Paul's sandals for a minute. If you were in his position, what kind of letter would you be writing? I mean, would you be kind of maybe writing a letter to your family to say, guys, get me out of here? Maybe using a special kind of code, you could establish like a really elaborate escape plan, like a couple of horses and a rope around the bars and that'll be good. You could like orchestrate this massive escape like Alcatraz and Clean Eastwood, they've got nothing on you. Now, if you haven't seen that movie, treat yourself, it's great. Or, uh, or would you be trying to get your affairs in order? You know, my house, I live to this person, my car to this person, you know, my, my Tarzo collection... I leave to this person, so on and so forth. What would you be trying to communicate with the outside world to your friends and family at home? Let's read verse 12 again together. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. See here that Paul's priorities, they shape his ministry. He is joyful because while he is behind bars, the gospel is still advancing. That's his priority, seeing the gospel going out and it's happening. And he has joy because of that. In verse 13, he goes on to share a couple of ways that this is happening. Verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. I was reading a book that I have called Operation World a while, a while ago. It's a book that has prayer points and stories from different parts uh, of the world, from different countries in the world that you can read through, pray through. 
Uh, in this book, there's a small story about a prison in Colombia that's called Bella Vista Prison in a place called Medellin. I think I said it right, I'm not sure. Uh, it's one of the most violent places on earth. And this prison itself somehow earned the name Hell on Earth, right? This was a rough place. Hardened criminals in this prison, uh, people who'd done horrible things. Yet in this prison, the gospel somehow thrived. Men who were murderers, drug traffickers, violent gang members heard the gospel and responded by repenting. That is, turning to Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Now in that prison, there's, there's regular prayer, there's open evangelism, there's people sharing Christ with other people. There's even a Christian radio station that exists inside this prison for other prisoners. And then to top it all off, a Bible institute has even formed. This is a training ground inside the prison that trains up inmates to minister to other prisoners. uh, prisoners. And then even to continue in ministry after their release. I think it's amazing. And then Paul, a couple of thousand years ago in Rome, in prison... He's not too worried that the gospel is going to be rendered ineffective by being behind bars. So he knows the effectiveness of the gospel. That is, it's not the power of Paul to save people. He knows it's the power of God's work, of God's word, the work of the Holy Spirit that will bring people to the knowledge of their need for Christ, their need to, to repent, to turn away from sin and turn towards him. Paul's priorities shape his ministry to see the advance of the gospel And he sees that being in prison has actually served to advance this. And so he isn't too worried about it being stopped. He's like the kid who just found out that their favourite team has won the grand final. He wants to tell everyone. Everyone in prison knows which team he's on. They all know why he is there. Kind of imagine the palace guard, those who were tasked with watching over Paul, when they looked at their roster for who they were meant to be watching over, would look again and go, oh, this guy Paul, again, I had him yesterday, he won't shut up. (laughs) Paul was saying to anyone who'd listen, you can know the living God. You can know him. God who came down to this earth, who's paid the price for your transgressions, your sin, your rebellion against him, He did that through his own son, Jesus. You can know him. Turn, repent and believe. And the result has been twofold. Everyone in the palace guard knows that Paul is in chains for Christ. And somehow through Paul being in prison, it's caused other people to be bold in proclaiming the gospel as well. When you think it would kind of be the opposite, wouldn't you? Paul gets shut up in prison. People think that that might happen to them, so they stop spreading this message and wanting to tell people of this and the gospel just kind of goes away and peters out. Why are Paul and these others still able to do this when the opposition toward them is so obvious? And when this opposition to the gospel can do things like chuck them in prison, can do things like kill them? Just keep that question in the back of your minds. We're going to come back to it in just a little bit. But for now, let's keep moving on. Point two... Paul's opposition from verse 15 Paul goes on he says it is true that some preach Christ out of rivalry but others out of goodwill the latter do so out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains but what does it matter The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. 
There are two things that are trying to work against Paul. The first one we've talked about, it's pretty obvious. He's in prison, he's behind bars. But the other are those who should be supporting Paul, but are seeking to stir up trouble for him. There are those who envy Paul. It's hard to know exactly what this looked like. Uh, We don't really know what they were saying specifically, except to know that they didn't preach the gospel from pure motives, but out of selfish ambition. Maybe they were envious of the fact that Paul's work had been fruitful. Maybe Paul said some things that they felt was aimed at them and their leadership and they were offended and chose to hold a grudge. But you can just, you can kind of picture it. Just imagine you're the pastor of a large church that has a lot of people attending it. You're well loved and you are, you like to hear that as well. But then this out of town preacher with a big name comes, comes in, right? He comes into town. And the people that usually listen to you, well, just start to hear some murmurs. They like his preaching better than yours. They can't believe all the amazing things he's done. They think he's cooler than you. Here we see people preaching the truth, doing clear Christian work, but doing it with sinful motives. Doing it out of envy, out of selfish ambition. When we step back and think through this, we can kind of see this happening. It's something we can understand, isn't it? When speaking of these uh, these Christian leaders in Rome, Don Carson puts it like this. He says, we can imagine their own pompous reflections. <sighs> it really is sad that so great a man as Paul has just frittered away his gospel opportunities simply because he's so inflexible. After all, I and many others uh, have managed to remain at large and preach the gospel. So one must assume that Paul has a deep, deep character flaw that puts him just in the path of trouble. My ministry is being blessed while he languishes in prison. Thus, the more they speak, the more their own ways are justified and the more Paul is made to look like a twit so that they'll look better. There are those in Rome who want to see Paul's ministry belittled who are preaching the gospel yet doing it out of rivalry and envy. What kind of effect would that have on you if you were in that position? I think it'd be pretty disheartening. But why is Paul writing this negative stuff to the Philippians after firstly going, it's okay, the gospel's going out. Why not just leave it there and then move on? I think the answer is all throughout Philippians. Uh, We've already read in Philippians chapter 1 last week that Paul is thankful for the gospel partnership which he and the Philippians share in. Now he's letting the Philippians know of a partnership that's gone wrong. Being those Christian leaders in Philippi, uh, in Rome, sorry, and their relationship to Paul. And then something we'll be looking at a bit more next week, at the end of chapter 2, Paul speaks of his desire to see the Philippians stand firm in the Spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the Gospel. So we can only assume that Paul is concerned that this might be a problem for this church in Philippi as well. He wants to point them away from disunity, from this selfish ambition and envy towards unity in the gospel and seeing it go forward. To the gospel, it's for people who don't know Christ, but it's for Christians as well to be reminded of and to live by, side by side. There's no place for disunity in the gospel. It's one reason that Paul is bringing this up now in this letter. But the other, I think, is fairly simple. In verse 18 again, The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. 
Paul knows that the gospel isn't hindered by bars. It isn't hindered by humans either. It goes forth regardless. And because of this, Paul rejoices. The gospel still advances despite hardship and trials for Paul and despite human sinfulness. I think it's important to note as well that Paul doesn't say that he's happy to be in prison. You should distinguish from Paul actually being happy and feeling deep joy at what he knows is happening despite his imprisonment. I mean, if we were in the same situation, I don't think we'd be able to say that we were happy to be behind bars either. But it's Paul's response in verses 18 through to 26 that really help us understand what Paul is feeling about his present situation. Why does Paul have this deep-seated joy that the gospel is advancing when he is in prison? I asked that question before, why are Paul and these other people still able to joyfully spread the gospel when opposition toward them is so obvious? Well, let's continue down and look at point three, Paul's response. We've said Paul's response is his present situation is shaped by his priorities, firstly being the advancement of the gospel, having known and understood its significance for himself and for others. He wants to see it go out. But I think Paul's response is mostly shaped by his perspective. So he has a certain perspective on life, but even more than that, Paul's response is shaped by the perspective that he has on eternity. There's that phrase in verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It teaches us about what Paul has his gaze fixed on, that it's not the day when he will be able to walk out of prison because he doesn't even know if he's going to survive there, His gaze is fixed upon Christ and the fact that he will one day get to go and be with his king. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's take it from a few verses up. In verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. It's kind of sounding here like Paul thinks he's going to get out of prison. But I don't think that's what he's getting at. He isn't saying that he thinks he's going to get out of prison. He's not saying everything's going to be okay, I'll be out of here in a matter of time, it's fine. You've got your Bibles, turn with me uh, to 2 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, 2 Timothy is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, which is someone we'll be reintroduced to a bit later on in this series. Uh, While Paul is awaiting the results of his trial in Rome, he writes this letter to Timothy to encourage him to continue in his ministry after Paul is gone. And he writes now in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy to remind Timothy of the Lord's deliverance. It says this, 2 Timothy 4 verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul reminds Timothy here that he's going to go be with God. He's going to go be with his king and that this king, God, will protect him. And it's in the same vein that Paul is writing now. I mean, Paul, at this point, when he's writing this letter, he's less sure about what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know if he will die, if he will live. But he's sure of where he stands before God. He knows that God will help him persevere through this time and that ultimately Paul will go to be with him. So while he lives, well, he lives for God. And he knows when he dies... That's gain, because he gets to go be with God. He gets to go be with his king. Verse 21 goes on, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, 
I will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go living on in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul isn't happy in his circumstances, he's hard. I think we'd think he was a bit weird if he was happy. But it's the joy he has in serving his Lord and Saviour Jesus that drives him on. He won't be ashamed of what happens to him. But while he lives on this earth, he wants to see Christ exalted in his body through the way that he lives his life. He wants Christ's name to be lifted up and seen through his life, through his actions and through the work of the gospel as it goes out, as Paul continues to share it with people. Because for Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. He will continue to do the work he's been called to do in order to encourage other Christians who hold to the gospel to progress in the faith and by the sounds of it he wants to be with them again not so that they can you know party and celebrate his release but so that their boasting in Christ Jesus will abound also through seeing Paul through being with him through hearing from him that is that Christ's name may be even more exalted even more lifted up by people even more well known in the world this is Paul's desire Paul's response is shaped by his perspective on eternity, on who he knows Jesus to be as his Lord and Saviour. This is why he wants to see the advance of the gospel, to see more and more people turn to Christ, turning from their old way of life to new life with him who loves them. This is the good news that Paul wants people to recognise and respond to. He knows that his life on this earth will end and that one day he will go to be with his Lord and King. So he wants to spend this life lifting up that name so that people will hear the good news, people will know this God who loves them and he wants them to be with him. He wants more and more people to boast in the name of Christ Jesus, to tell of his love, of his mercy, of his sacrifice on the cross that paid the price for sin that makes it possible for people to turn to God and call him Father. Is this something that excites you as well? Is it something that you'd like to see? Well, as a church, I think this is something we should all be partnering in. So we wouldn't exist as a church but for God's grace. We wouldn't know him but for Jesus. Do you remember who first told you the gospel? Can you remember responding to it? Is that something you you want for someone else as well? Do you find that same joy in the gospel going forth that Paul did. I think there are a few things that we can take home from this to, to mull over together now and to, uh, and to, and to feel. And the first is this. Well, if we ever feel like we're in the minority facing intolerance and opposition, well, how did Paul react and respond in that situation? Did he become standoffish and angry and bitter? The guy got thrown into prison. And yet he still found joy in the opportunities that it had for people to hear the message of salvation. He continued to share the gospel, God's word, with people who desperately needed to hear it. 
He didn't withdraw from them when they persecuted them, him. He chose to love them instead and chose to share with them this great message of salvation. The gospel still went out and did its work. God still did his work amidst opposition. God's word still spoke into people's lives. And it doesn't really work any differently today. It's still God's word doing the same thing today as it did back then. So let the gospel shape how you respond in the face of opposition, in the face of intolerance. That's the first thing. The second thing, well, we want progress and joy in the faith too. So be bold like Paul. Let others see and be encouraged likewise to spread this message of good news. One way we can encourage one another with this is to share stories with one another of the work of the gospel in your life, in the lives of those who you know. Urge one another on and encourage one another in this. In just a little bit, we'll be hearing from Shannon and from Becky as well about the work of Jesus and their lives, how they came to know him and the impact it's had on their lives. On the back of your leaflets, every month we have someone's testimony talking about how Jesus has been at work in their life. It's a great thing to continue doing together, reminding one another of. But be bold, talk to people who don't know Christ about this great message. And in this, remember how Jesus felt when he saw people who didn't know him. In Mark chapter 6, another book of the Bible, Jesus saw a big crowd of people who were following him to listen to him. And it says this in Mark chapter 6 verse 34, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he'd been on a boat, not a spaceship. It's important to know as well. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So pray. Pray that God would give you that same compassion for those who don't know him that he has. This compassion that Jesus had for those who didn't know God for those who don't know God still, for those who turned away from God, being the entire world in everyone in it. This compassion that Jesus had for those who don't know God, it led him to lay down his life, led him to die in our place, so that we would no longer face that eternity without knowing God, but so that we would turn to him, away from living a life that rejects him, to trusting in Jesus. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, please continue to look into this because you have a God that loves you and he wants you to know him. If you'd like to keep hearing more about this God and about Jesus, maybe you could uh, talk to the person you came with today. You could come and talk to myself or to Mike or even just leave a communication card with a couple of questions that we can follow you up on later on. Because this is the most important thing that you will ever think through in your life. That's number two. And finally, number three, as Paul had joy in the gospel going forth and in the gospel itself, let's seek to have that same joy in the gospel that Paul has. Remember the significance of Jesus' work in your life, what that's meant for you. Remind yourself and one another what the gospel is of salvation of a God who loves his people. Is Paul's joy the kind of joy that you have in the gospel? Let's pray now and ask God that it would be. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible love for us, shown through your Son, Jesus, that while we were still sinners, turned away from you, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin. Lord, we pray that we would uh, really feel this and know this great truth, that we would have great joy in the gospel, in knowing you, and joy in seeing it out, go out and see it work in other people's lives as well. Pray that for uh, all of us here, that this is something that would shape how we live. Amen.